Welcome to Neighborly. Presentable. House number one, Little Street. What a lovely little neighborhood. What lovely little houses in their lovely little rows. What lovely little chimney stacks coronating each lovely little roof. What lovely little birds swooping and chirping and lining the telephone wires patiently waiting, waiting for... something. What are the lovely little birds waiting for? What a lovely little thing to have to wonder about. Little Street is nice to look at, like a row of teeth in a smile, and right at the edge like a molar is house number one. In many ways, it is like a molar, isn't it? It's broad and stout, enamel-white on the outside, but fading to respectable yellow with age, and there's a small collection of garden gnomes on the lawn beside it. In other ways, it is rather unlike a molar. People live in it, for instance. Well... I don't want to assume. Perhaps people do live in your molars, and it's perfectly fine if they do. I promise I wouldn't judge you for that. But for the sake of making it easy on me, let's pretend they don't, okay? Since people don't live in your molars, in this hypothetical, it's unlikely that your molars have, like house number one, a thick and proud front door, painted a deep green with a silver number one in a serif font screwed to the center of it. It's unlikely that, if you open that front door in your molar, you'd find a wide but short hallway with thin patterned wallpaper and a really quite tasteful and not at all ostentatious banister. And in the part of the hallway between the door to the living room and the door to the kitchen, there's a stain in the carpet. Before I told you, you would have never noticed it, would you? You wouldn't have even given it a second glance, and if you had, you might have written it off as a shadow or a quirk in the pattern. It's quite conveniently shaped, isn't it? Its edges hug the pattern in the way of a good citizen abiding by borders. The people in this house have been trying to get it out for years. When the stain first happened, Dorothy, the mother, was down each morning elbow-deep in pink rubber gloves and chemical carpet cleaners scrubbing and scrubbing, so that if the floor were flesh, it would have reddened to the most abraded blush. Dorothy cares very much about whether you'd give the stain in the carpet a second glance. She and her husband, Robert who reads the newspaper every morning with a cup of coffee and a pair of scissors on the table beside him, would like to have you believe that there never was anything in their lives that might cause a stain like that in their hallway carpet. If they ever even invited you in. Because for two people who care so very dearly about appearances, they trust all outsiders so very little that most of the appearances they so carefully curate are never seen by anyone at all. Their daughter, Agatha, hangs around with the boy from house number 13 an awful lot. But they aren't sure at all about him. They aren't sure at all about anyone. Very nearly no one at all ever sees inside their lovely home. 
So how, you might be asking? Did these people who care so very much about keeping everything nice, these born and bred house-bred people, ever get such a stain in their hall carpet in the first place? Well, that's the story I wanted to tell you today. When she kissed Robert away to work in his nicely pressed white shirt and absent glances at his watch, when she ushered out the scowling Agatha to school with her sharpie customized bag and the threat of a stick-and-poke tattoo appearing on her skin any day now, I swear to God, Mom, sputtering out of her lips. Dorothy took a moment that day to sit at the table and take in her to-do list. It was a largely unremarkable list for that day, with a few things already crossed off, such as the fruitcake already sitting under the popcorn ceiling, royal icing under a stone cover, with the sweet scalloped edges to keep it nice and fresh. All that was really left, after the average daily task of chasing down every speck of dust to ensure the house was spick and span and absolutely in order with not a moat out of place, was to visit the butchers for dinner. If she could weave a net fine enough, she would catch the dust in the air mid-dance, but for now the vacuum cleaner would have to do. After the cleaning, Dorothy applied her sunblock liberally, though it was a brisk autumnal afternoon. She hugged a scarf around her shoulders like a shawl and checked the door was locked twice before heading out to the butcher's. She barked out an order as soon as she stepped through the push door and the butcher, a ruddy-faced woman called Sam, hurried to fulfil it. While she waited, Dorothy browsed the glass cases of cuts in every colour, from deep bruise purple to bride's blush red. And when Sam pushed the white bag of cold meat over the counter to her with a smile... She did not leave immediately after pain. Be sure to come by after dinner, after dark, with the rest of it. Sam's smile stuttered and gave up its customer service pretense. She nodded once, curtly and solemnly, and Dorothy pushed the butcher's door open with her elbow while she scratched dinner off her to-do list. The bell above the door knelled a bit discordantly, shrilly, as though it were trying to tell us something. At home again, Dorothy donned her signature pink rubber gloves and matching respirator mask, just as a precaution, before cracking open the door to Agatha's room. There was no rug on the floorboards, which made vacuuming them a cinch. The bed was made, but crumpled and unseemly, so Dorothy made it again. The walls were layered with posters, and Dorothy tutted as she removed some of them, though not all this time. A compromise. All that black could not be good for the mind of a growing girl, but she conceded that some independence and level of choice was important. Her eyes grew wet and threatened to spill under the mask. Her little girl really was growing up. Soon she would be just like her mother and father. When Agatha returned home from school, the thudding rhythm her heavy boots pounded out on the stairs was almost as tuneful as her infuriating, screaming, banshee tirade in response to the missing posters. When Dorothy showed her the cardboard tube into which they had been carefully rolled, Agatha snatched it out of her hands with her chipped black-polished claws. Such a strong grip. When Robert returned home from work, he accepted Dorothy's kiss and asked her about dinner. She smiled a thin, closed-lipped smile and told him it was to be a special one. He looked at her with wide eyes. Tonight? She nodded. A question passed over his eyes like a ghost. She smiled reassuringly and nodded again, squeezing his arm. Then his face broke into a diamond grin and he asked what was needed, what was left to prepare. And she told him. 
Agatha's boots were still heavy on her floorboards above the kitchen while Dorothy and Robert prepared the meal. Dorothy whistled as she worked, anointing a chunk of ham and putting it in the oven. Robert's movements were more wooden. He chopped the vegetables like a clumsy guillotine, each slice thudding into the chopping board so it took just as much effort to lift the knife as it did to strike it down. When the noise was particularly vociferous, Dorothy cast him a disapproving glance with the unspoken message to temper his excitement. When Robert called Agatha down for dinner, since she would no longer answer for Dorothy, there was a quaver in his voice that twisted her features suspiciously, but she came down all the same. Agatha did not consider it strange that the food was bland and tough. She did not consider it strange that the water jug she poured from had a chemical smell lifting from it. She especially did not consider it strange that her parents did not exactly eat their dinner. They sat with perfect posture and perfect dining etiquette while they meticulously shredded the meat and vegetables down to a goopy pile that was unrecognisable save for the bones. Why would she consider it strange? They did that at every dinner, every evening, for every week of every year of her entire life. Every so often, they brought an empty fork to their lips with a smile and complimented the other on their skills in the kitchen. It was dull. Sometimes she wished they would eat something. When she was younger, she tried to make them, after she figured out how to do it herself, and they humoured her for a while. They would bring the food to their lips and let it dribble off their chins, making exaggerated noises of appreciation. Mmm, mmm, it is so much better this way. After a while, she gave up. She bet Aaron's parents weren't this boring. She bet other kids her age had parents that ate. But she didn't ask, because how embarrassing it would be to tell them, right? Right. It wouldn't turn out well. Better to pretend that her parents were exactly as noteworthy as all the other parents in Little Street. Which is to say, not noteworthy at all. She wished they would be less boring, but God forbid they be interesting. It would be a curse most foul to wish upon someone a set of interesting parents. So it was doubly troubling when her mother dabbed the edges of her mouth with a napkin and rose from the table breaking the routine of turning out the full plate into the compost bin to fetch a spikily iced fruitcake. Fruitcake was not Agatha's favourite kind of cake, but royal icing was her favourite type of icing. She remembered many Christmases of balding the cake while her parents had satisfied grins behind disapproving tuts. But they hadn't had fruitcake in years, and it certainly wasn't. Christmas. She licked her lips. What's this about? Her mother smiled her tiny smile and told her it was a special occasion. A treat. A surprise. Can't a normal day be special? We can make a normal day special when we're together. We're a family. Try some cake. Her father passed her a dessert fork. A little one with three tines, one of which has a strange shape, thicker and beveled, like a divot gone out of it. It caught the falling evening light like a pearl, real silver. Agatha looked out the gliding door just as her father turned on the kitchen light. She hadn't noticed how dark it had gotten. The bird sitting on the fence peeking in was almost invisible against the sky. 
Dorothy cut three thick slices of cake and gave Agatha the edge slice, the arc with the most icing. She and Robert set about vivisecting their cakes like they had with dinner, but passed the nicely dismembered icing chunks over to her plate. It was a simple thing, and she did not show through her scowl how much it touched her. They knew she liked the icing, they remembered, and they gave it to her whole as much as they probably would have rathered reducing it back to powder. She ate the icing, feeling the soft sugar coat her teeth and tongue and set her blood buzzing. She even tried some of the fruitcake, too. It was heady and dense, but not as repugnant as she remembered. Agatha allowed herself a subtle little smile. There was a knock on the door. Robert stumbled when he got up to open it. Dorothy caught his hand and gave him a look. Agatha peered into the darkness to see a lot more birds on the fence than there had been when she started eating the cake. And two silhouettes. "'Agatha, darling,' said Dorothy. It was Sam, the butcher, and another person. Someone tumbled down and shambling, a shuddering, blubbering mess of a person with wide yellow eyes and a jaw full over with drool that didn't fit shut. I do wish you'd been quicker about eating your slice of cake. Adrenaline is a funny thing. Sometimes it saves you. In that moment, it made Agatha stand up as if to run, but then freeze. Her brain was trying to figure it out. Why wasn't anyone else the least bit frightened? Her mother was taking a sip out of an empty teacup, and her father was stood leaning against the counter looking chuffed, as though he wished he had a camera. Sam suddenly became very interested in her shoelaces. And the strange person with the jaws was looking around. They whined, the sound coming from deeper than their throat. And Sam smiled at them tightly and patted their arm. She sniffed at them, and they sniffed back. Then they sniffed again. Then they sniffed again. And when she saw the gleam in their eyes, that's when Agatha ran. Sometimes adrenaline saves you. Sometimes it trips you up. Agatha fell sprawling when her foot connected with a threshold plate wrong. She tried to scramble to her feet, but the person grabbed her by the leg and pulled, flipping her onto her back. She screamed and thrashed. Dorothy tutted without much sympathy. You're scaring it, poor thing. In the eyes of this person, Agatha may well have been a slice of toast protesting its buttering. They tried to blink the blear from their eyes, their mouth slackening of the effort it took to keep it somewhat closed. They turned towards Sam. Their eyes made the slow trek back to Agatha's body, and then they kneeled down, the jaw juddering wider and wider and wider. Agatha thrashed again, managing to land a punch square in their nose, and the person let out a withering, aberrant howl. She didn't even notice when they snatched her wrist in a vice grip. Once more the person froze, enraptured, befuddled. Once more they turned their head towards Sam. Oh, for heaven's sake, said the mother, this is taking far too long and making far too much noise. What will the neighbors think? Dorothy wore the kind of shoes that clicked against flooring, no matter how plush. She bemoaned the nuisance of hiring for such a task and how she would do the whole thing herself if she wasn't worried about losing a finger. And the person watched her, agog, with fat strings of drool puddling down their shirt, still gripping the wrist. Agatha bit back spongy, metallic tears. 
Her mother crouched beside her with a soothing smile that couldn't melt the ice in her eyes. She extended a perfectly manicured talon to tuck Agatha's hair behind her ear, and on its way slice open her forehead and allow the blood to well up and weep. Agatha's breath hissed, and the person's eyes suddenly focused. The hand that was not holding Agatha's wrist pushed her head hard back against the radiator. She screamed. Dorothy shushed her. Agatha could feel the person's warm, sticky breath on her cheek like the heat of rot, like a cadaver in a bellows. She felt the drool fall heavy on her clothes. She felt the person's mouth press against her forehead, tongue first, then the lips sucked pressure in her skin. She thrashed and pushed and screamed and never stopped screaming, no matter how many noises of disapproval her mother made. Though it was no use. She may well have been punching a storm. The teeth came. Did you ever sustain an injury as a child? Were you ever injured in a way that made you afraid? Whatever way you twisted or pierced your body, however it was you managed to get hurt, there was likely a moment in that, a tiny flash of a moment, where you were certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you were going to die. When Agatha felt those teeth pierce through her skull like needles through an eggshell, you could say she had an experience rather like that. It wasn't a flash. It was a thousand years. It was death solidifying, gaining a heft that smothered her. The darkness handcuffed her vision. And then everything sped up. This time. When she landed a punch on the person, they crumpled against the wall. She stood fluidly and kicked them. She could hear Sam saying something, could hear the tone in her voice getting more and more desperate, but only distantly, as though through a waterfall. Then she felt the strangest desire, the inkling, the itch, the need to reach down and lift the person off the ground. Their eyes were heavy, but they looked right into hers with dutiful bewilderment which only blossomed when she slammed them bodily against the ground. She did not notice when she started tearing chunks out of them with her teeth, but she did not stop when she noticed. The carotid vomited a fire hose of thick, dark blood. Dorothy cried out in alarm when it quickly seeped into the carpet. Robert opened the door under the stairs. Agatha had never known the door to open and behind it she saw a darkness that distracted her. She pulled her quarry with her as she peered in at this new wonder, and then she was peering a little too closely as she was tumbling down the stairs into a basement that had never been in her childhood home before. By the time she was let out, after months of picking the darkness clean of life, Agatha was beautiful, unbreakable, and hungry. Happy birthday, Agatha. Have you ever looked at the closed front door of a home in your neighborhood, the home of someone you've never spoken to, and found yourself wondering what goes on in there? What mysteries are they living out? What stories are they telling themselves? Do you ever really know your neighbors? Dorothy, Robert, and Agatha are not the only family that live on Little Street, after all. Each house has a story. Behind every door there is something new to learn and experience. So let's not dwell on poor Agatha. 
Let's not wonder about Sam and her friend. Let's hurry on. Let's meet all those around us. Let's show an interest. Let's be neighborly. Neighborly is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Today's house was written and edited by Matthew O.K. Smith, with music by Alex Schwartz and art by Cloudy Apple Art. The narrator is voiced by Matthew O.K. Smith. To find out more, visit neighborlypod.card.co or follow us on social media at neighborlypod. If you enjoyed listening today, information on how you can support us will be included in the episode description. Most of all, we would appreciate it if you told a friend, because they might tell a friend, and they might tell a friend, and who knows? Eventually, God might finally listen to us. Today's yard sign says, vote for the unimaginable horror of telling someone the honest truth about the core of yourself and having them act as though you'd commented on the weather. And their running mate, the literal Christian rapture. Thanks for listening. The Station Arcadia podcast tells stories from a dystopian world where dieselpunk, steampunk, cyberpunk, and solarpunk societies all exist side by side. These diverse stories are told through a radio station on a shifting island, and given voice by the station's host, Cassandra. Did that man just try to offer jerky as a consolation prize for someone's daughter? Woven through each standalone story are threads that come together to tell the story of a revolution and hope in the face of a dying world. I understand enough. The revolution still has hope and I want to help. Breaks in the narration bring us on site to each society, where we hear four unique and powerful stories. Stop squirming! I can lift myself through the window, let me just... Transcripts and additional information are available at StationArcadia.com. Stay safe, stay moving, and stick close. You've been listening to Station Arcadia, the promo.